When we go for our soul's journey, it will be beautiful and it will be crushing, but we're being crushed by reality because there's parts of us that need to be crushed and composted. And that's what's like sometimes daunting as I know like it's gonna continue. So every new dream is like, I'm not gonna get around heartbreak. Hello, and welcome to Possibility Now with Ethan Hughes. I'm your host, Tucker Walsh. Two years ago, I was living the Hollywood dream, traveling around the world as a documentary and commercial filmmaker. The more successful I became on a material level, the more I felt empty, burnt out, depressed, and disconnected from my soul. I decided to leave my dream job and move across the country to rural Maine, where I'd spend the next two years on a healing and transformational journey that was nothing short of a miraculous rebirth. One of those miracles was the honor and joy of befriending Ethan Hughes while apprenticing at the Possibility Alliance in Belfast, Maine. Ethan is one of those people who truly walks the talk, a living embodiment of his values. Though imperfectly, he beautifully exemplifies the expression, be the change you want to see in the world. Ethan and his partner Sarah run the Possibility Alliance, an educational center, an electricity-free, intentional community operating in the gift economy. This podcast will explore the topics most alive in Ethan's heart, including conflict transformation, trauma healing, direct action, radical justice, nonviolence, regenerative economies, reparations, pitfalls of the liberal progressive movement, community building and organizing, peace archetypes, the power of manifesting, and so much more. Our first episode will be part one of Ethan's truly incredible and epic life story, full of heartbreak, triumphs, and wisdom learned. It's a remarkable journey, and I'm so grateful and honored to share it with all of you. So let's get started. Hi, Ethan. Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, let's start off for people who aren't familiar with you and, and your work and your, your life journey. I'd love to hear just a little bit about um, who you are. How would you describe yourself? I would say I'm a human being that's trying to figure out how to be fully human. Thinking of the quote by Sonia Sanchez that says, resist everything that keeps us from being human. And... Um, that has been my life of hitting the walls of what keeps me from being fully alive. And at the same time, allowing all people in all life to be fully alive. So that's been where this great journey has led me. So where has it led you? Maybe do you want to give a brief overview as to um, who you are and kind of what you're doing in, in everyday life? Yeah, there are many phases I think that we'll talk about of critical moments or moments of the dark night of the soul that that led me to experiments different than mainstream society Um, but it it led to the accumulation of a project called the possibility alliance which was just about that is how to be an alliance of each other's possibilities vocation dreams and how to weave that in to creates the world that our our hearts are longing for a world with justice a world with equality um, in a real tangible felt way and 
really following a simple guide, which is a, our typical guide, which we see from lots of movements, the Freedom Indian Movement, the Black Liberation Movements of the 60s, um, Joanna Macy more recently. And so we uh, follow these three integral pieces and feeling like the synergy of these creates lots of opportunities for the world we want to see. And the first one is inner work. So I feel that's the hardest work, uh, undoing our own, as me as a white male, connection to patriarchy or reconnecting myself to nature, decolonizing my mind, doing trauma and grief work. So innerly reflecting the magnificence of the universe of just life thriving. And the second part of the work is to create parallel systems in the world now. Uh, there's a quote from Peter Marin that says, uh, to build the new world in the shell of the old. So the second part is how do we help create food sovereignty with people, all peoples, people in different class, different race. How do we create new modes of transportation, new modes of joy? And I think of Adrian Marie Brown, pleasure activism, where we're not that there's not struggle, but we're enjoying and have energy for creating the new world and a parallel system to capitalism, parallel system to white supremacy, parallel systems that are the beautiful side to that of a, of a world where there is enough, where everyone is guaranteed food, shelter, clothing and health care and everyone's cared for and all all life can can live. So parallel systems is the second part where it comes from the inward and then you create a new map for the world and live into it. And then the third is defensive life, that if we just focus on those two, we realize there is a broken system. Uh, I, I still believe we're beautiful, incredible, miraculous people in a very broken domination system. And so to remember, remember that always is helpful for me, but it's defending life that if, for example, right here in Belfast, a multinational corporation is putting in one of the world's largest land-based fish farms, which will destroy the watershed and destroy an already ailing ocean in the time of the sixth extinction, that we get, we stand up to protect, uh, I think, the indigenous leaders of Standing Rock to say, yeah, when they became protectors, I think is a great way to frame water protectors, life protectors. So the third one is protecting, meaning using our leverage to get in the way of harm and to transform those causing harm and to, uh, as Barbara Deming, great, a great uh, queer activist of the 60s, the two hands. One is, we will not allow this harm to happen. And there's always a hand. The second hand is reached out and you are welcome here if you are willing to do that healing, to undo the harm and trauma that domination society has placed on all of us. So those three in synergy we've been working on, I've been working on, uh, my partner for many, uh, many years, uh, 20 years full on, and we're still just touching into the possibility of a real synergy. I think we need to chase the chicken away. Yes. 
we'll be right back. <laughs> what is the Possibility Alliance? Uh, how would you describe it just in a sentence? It's an experiment to try to create the world that lives in our heart. Um, it is a community, but the main focus is uh, a laboratory of experimenting, experimenting with direct action, experimenting with reparations, experimenting with inner healing, and experimenting with reweaving our relationship with the natural world. So the Possibility Alliance began in Missouri in 2007, and it was land-based, and we welcomed anyone to come and participate in uh, creating the world that was beautiful and allowed healing for all. Um, at our peak, we had 1,500 visitors come in a year. Uh, I'd say the average was around 1,000 people would come, and there was no exchange of money for them to come and participate. Uh, sometimes it was classes or part educational center, part uh, sanctuary. People would come wanting to heal from op opioid addiction or come out of divorce or acute depression. So it was a sanctuary. It also was a place where people could learn skills to live with the earth, growing food, building by hand. And then we, through many reasons, relocated our project to Maine. And so we're on 10 acres in Belfast, Maine, coastal Maine, on the uh, occupied territory of the Penobscot, and actually in the moment trying to figure out how to be exactly what the world needs right now. So we're kind of reinventing ourselves in the moment. Yeah, it's a super exciting time to be here and to be present to all the change and all the change happening in the world and all the change happening here at the Possibility Alliance. And we'll get into that, but maybe we jump back in time. And um, yeah, I'd be curious if you could take us back to your childhood. How does uh, a little boy from Gloucester grow up to, to be <laughs> here at the Possibility Alliance? Yeah, I, I grew up, some would say, very low middle class or high low class. Um, my dad was a social worker, my mom a nurse, and we had, um, I was born, the, one of the last babies to be born in uh, the hospital in Gloucester in Massachusetts. And I was ate Twinkies and Captain Crunch and watched Saturday cartoons. And I had loving parents, but a very uh, mainstream uh, public school. And yeah, our town wrestled with a lot of uh, issues, one of the highest heroin per capita uses in the country at that time, in a crashing fish industry that, um, as the ocean was collapsing, felt that economically, and which was a blue-collar, working-class town, and watching gentrification happen as wealthier people from Boston came in and the Italian-Portuguese community was pushed out. Um, yeah, so... I did have, you know, I realized I had a deep influence. Uh, my dad was a social worker. He worked with um, adults with Down syndrome, and he also worked at the Boys Club in Boston with a lot of uh, mainly black and Latino boys. And he just was always serving the underdog, and that was a huge influence. And would, we'd have kids from Boston come down and spend the weekend for us, and he'd bring us up to Boston. And we would interact and go on field trips with the Down syndrome adults and just were exposed to more than we're gift. That was a gift to my dad. And my mom was an emergency room nurse, so she was just right in the thick of serving those in need. 
so I did have powerful role models, a healer and a, and a uplifter of those marginalized in our culture. So thanks, mom and dad. Beautiful. So, yeah, I heard you were kind of a rambunctious kid. Maybe you could talk a little <laughs> yeah. bit about that, some of the stories. And um, what were the some of the key moments of your childhood that you think defined and, and shaped you into who you are today? Yeah, um, I definitely was supported by my family. I had an anti-authoritarian streak. I, I had a sense, like my journals, even when I was 10, would talk about how I felt after coming home from the mall and where was all this stuff coming from. And so I had kind of intuitive sense, even though my family uh, didn't necessarily have this radical uh, analysis about the world. Um, but I got... Uh, removed from kindergarten because I would just be working on art and they'd say it's time to do this other thing I'm like I'm not finished and I was seen as a troublemaker because I wasn't following the rules because I really was trying to stay committed to my um, what my heart was telling me to do it didn't go well um, in O'Malley school in seventh grade I had the uh, O'Malley school public school record for the holding room um, I still remember the principal saying 56 times this year you've been sent to the holding room which is a pink room because it was color therapy and my chair would be facing the wall. And it was just because I was a human, a wild and, you know, human with an indigenous soul put into this box for the day in a chair and no connection with what was life for. So often I would just do stuff like climb out the window or throw a paper airplane or adjust the water fountain so it would spray on uh, teachers when they went to the teacher's lounge. And so, yeah, I was a bit of a rebel, but I, I got in-house suspension and out-house suspension and um, just was resisting this uh, attempt to conform. There was great teachers, again, beautiful people in a crazy system. So I had amazing, some amazing teachers that helped me. Um, but yeah, so I, I, if that was the 70s, I certainly probably, if it was now, would be on a whole, sl whole list of drugs that would have suppressed, you know, that energy and not having that actual pharmaceuticals. So I was um, thankful to avoid that. Mm. All they could do was um, kick me out of school. They couldn't put, you know, drug me up. <laughs> wow. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what happened when you were 13 years old and um, yeah, that moment in your life. Yeah. Um, I was, I remember it very vividly. I'd spent the night at my friend Tony Remington's house and the phone rang at like four in the morning. And I remember waking up to the phone call and um, Tony's mom called me and it was my uncle, Stephen, said my dad had been hit by a drunk driver and was in a coma and um, to pack up our stuff and head to the intensive care unit. And it was a, I mean, it was a intense initiation going there and my dad was he hit his head just the right way so he didn't look beat up at all he was just laying there and on a respirator and um a pro had a profound connection uh with him in the hospital the last night ever before he died everyone went home and i refused to go home and John Zergabel, my one of my dad's best friends who lost his dad when he was 15, stayed with me that night. 
and we had my dad was into magic tricks so he had a magic card deck he would do it at the boys club and always do tricks and we um, grabbed the cards and we're just crying and overwhelmed on the fourth night in the intensive care lobby and he said let's play poker I dealt him and then he's like we're all straight flush and then he shuffled and we thought we were playing a card trick on each other then he dealt me a straight flush and then we'd shuffle and that happened about 40 times I would deal him a roll straight he was totally he was 40 he was washing his face banging his head on the window he's like what is happening the probability of this happen we'd move one card and he's now passed away but anytime I'd see him do you realize we touched into something beyond the veil like it was either hallucination from the stress and we went to get a nurse because after a while he's like someone's got to witness this and we went into my dad's room and we both had the image of my dad with his cap on and a in a suitcase in our same image in our head and we both realized it was his great trick final card trick we both fell on the ground laughing and the nurse came in and he grabbed me because he was embarrassed like just the nurse thought we're going crazy and we walked out of the room and then a few other things happened but it was uh initiation that there was something more than just the physical realm and i was really um scared to share, share it that's the kind of like society we're in the miraculous happens and I remember being stoned with some Gloucester friends and I shared it and they all were like, oh, that must have been hard, you know, thinking I made up the story. So that was like an initiation to what's invisible, ancestors and spirit realm. And um, that was huge. And then realizing my mom joined Mothers Against Drunk Driving and I started to direct experience of the cost of modern society, of addiction, of, um, you know, you he, he he was murdered by a, a system of addiction and consumerism, um, as so many are. And my mom forgave the driver because all, all people in my family were drinking and driving and there was no charges placed. And uh, I know he must carry that too, but it was more of that systemic thing of beautiful people participa participating in things that are making us more depressed and more isolated. So. That was another initiation, seeing my mom. My mom's response was uh, influenced my whole life. That she could have become bitter or closed down and she like joined an organization to shift it. Mothers Against Drunk Driving and and uh, just role model like when there's a problem, we can either um, be totally held down by it or we can rise up to change it and um that was a huge moment along with the great grief of i had to face that death happens at 13 um yeah how does an incident like that change you and shape you did you um what was different the day after that happens than the day before in you the moment that most stands out for me is walking back into like eighth grade public middle school and just coming in the door and I, I remember just it was like I was in slow motion and everyone's like the big hair and people talking about what they're wearing and all of these things and I just remember walking in and I had I was changed forever I'm like what are we doing like we die like what are we worrying about if we're wearing this brand name or um, and even like, what are we doing in school? Why are we learning all this? Why aren't we learning like 
how to like transform the planet, how to heal, how to, you know, and all that just raced through my mind. And it wasn't like I thought about it. It just flooded my mind. And that first day of school, I just was in this really place of observing and just seeing like, we are totally lost. And then trying to talk with this, talk about this to people in the count, you know, I had a counsel, guidance counselor because my dad just died. And also no adults could talk about death. Like I would meet somebody that really connected with me and be like, who is your dad? Tell me about him. And then I'd realize they had lost someone. So only those initiated through death, I could have like a normal conversation. Years later, when I was uh, doing service work in um, Indonesia and Africa, um, there was, um, in those cultures, like, oh, your dad got to see you until you were 13 and, and initiate you to manhood. And there was just such an open conversation. So that was also like, wow, we don't, we ignore death. And we ignore grieving. And that was also the thing of like, we ignore being fully human. And so as I talked about these problems, all the adults were like, just, you'll be fine. And you'll graduate and go to college. Like, don't worry about it. Like, it was almost like I was a mirror that was really uncomfortable. Just naming that what I would ask the counselor, like, what is happening here? Like, we're the bells ringing. We're going from classroom to classroom to learn how to like make money or consume goods. Like, what, you know? Is really, I also felt crazy, you know? Some people were like, we, people would just say, you just lost your dad, so you're a bit unstable. But it felt like this clarifying moment. Um, so that really changed everything. So where do you go from there? 13 years old, completely disillusioned with the entire society that you are a part of, and you've lost your father and you're grieving and you feel alone. Um, where do you go from there? What? How do you move forward? I kind of, I think as a, I did the best I could at that time. I'm super glad that my mom really helped me to grieve and was there as a grief tender. But I, I kept my foot in both worlds. Like I'm a, I didn't forget um, that the fact that preciousness of life was like every moment, every, I, I started to, every time someone was leaving, I'd hug them and tell them like, I love you. And it became kind of a joke. Like, you know, whenever someone leaves a party, be like, oh, someone's walking out the door. Hey, Keith Palazzola, don't, you know, I want to give you a hug before you leave. Like there was this awareness. So that was there. But I also did part of the high school thing. Um, I would sometimes walk home from parties because I wouldn't be in the car. So, you know, there's a lot of drinking and partying and someone would get in the car and be like, I'll be fine. I'm like, it's actually, I'm not worried about you. Like often the driver um, isn't the one who loses their life. So I had to start walking a parallel path and kind of balancing that. And also uh, any, any teacher or anyone who is uh, what I saw pressing students, like there was a gym teacher that always picked on the kids that, weren't that athletic and put them out in the middle and dodgeball. And I, I would, I would go toe to toe with authority. Like I blocked a whole upper stairwell with little blocks that I cut out. So when the bell rang, everyone was locked in their classes and I pulled the shorts down on one of those gym teachers. And, you know, as I said, would be uh, expelled for, we took a huge anchor and blocked the front door of the high school. I, I just was like the, 
um, the outlaw because I didn't know what to do, but at least I could like monkey wrench the system a little bit. So I kind of kept my foot in both worlds. I would regularly talk with John Zergabel just to remember like that happened. You know, we saw this, the manipulation of the cards and we were in it for 20 minutes. You know, imagine trying to shuffle and trying not to deal your friend a royal straight flush and he figured out that probability was like one in 30 trillion, you know, for the 40 royal straight flushes. Um, but so I tried to hang on to those pieces while also I'm a young hit puberty and I was um, wanting to experience the being in the body and being with the kissing and experimenting and all of those things. So it was a, it was a, a real mix. So what was the next moment in life that was transformational for you? The next moment that really shifted you into who you are today? Yeah, I, I, I think another big shift, I got a scholarship uh, to go to college, a, a state university. And that was another awakening that I was doing, uh, working to pay off you know, student work and doing full course hours and seeing all these people came and realizing the wealth, like private school kids that just their parents bought them a skiing cabin in Vermont and they had a credit card and that they had to use a certain amount of money a month or their parents would be worried about them. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is very different. Now we weren't in, when my dad died, my mom was a nurse and we had one used car and she was, you know, paying rent month to month. But we weren't, I know a lot of people have so much more uh, poverty, but it was just this realization. Um, and the real shift was I, I went on a program to Ecuador with School of International Training. And it was a program where Ecuadorians would lead a lot of our comparative biology. And for my um, independent studies, I spent time in the rainforest with the Siona Sequoia on the Aguarico, and it was a small semi-nomadic tribe. And the that was also the time when uh, uh, Petro Ecuador, under a subcontract with Texaco, uh, the wells of oil and pipeline broke in an earthquake and flooded twice the Valdez into the Amazon. So I was, for the first time in my life, I was seeing direct consequence of my life, of this oil was covering the banks and uh, indigenous people in the Amazon were being paid a dollar a day to scoop it into bags and bury it 50 feet out of the river and animals covered in oil and dead. And I was, um, that was both a moment of incredible trauma and calling back home and saying, this is happening. You know, there's no cell phones. It was like one satellite call and, and them saying, what are you talking about? It's not in the news like that. There was a lawsuit 10 years later, but it wasn't, it was being hidden in the news. And, and then I went to a banana plantation and figured out how many people were dying from the pesticides and basically a new form of slave labor. And there was the banana that was like, oh, I love bananas. And here's Chiquita banana, like and sitting there seeing the oppression happening both to the earth and to the people. So it was a loss of the... Losing my dad to a drunk driver was the first loss of innocence, but this was the next loss of innocence that we are really 
um, empire. We are living um, both with the oppression of indigenous and blacks in the United States, but then globally the largest military and extracting resources from all over the planet. And here I was just, why didn't anyone tell me? I, in my journals when I was in the Amazon, I was just experiencing a mental breakdown. I didn't want to go back. Meanwhile, I'm living with this incredible tribe under Konai and Confenii, two of the larger unified indigenous groups in, in South America at the time. And um, I was also going out at full moon wild boar hunting with blowguns you know, <laughs> and just experiencing a direct experience of life where nobody had to pay for land, no one had to pay for shelter, no one had to pay for education. There was no uh, homelessness. There was no um, oral memory of rape or murder. And I was like, wait a second, I'm reading in the books that their life expectancy is 40 years old and how, how primitive it is. But here's Emilio who's 84 and out hunting uh, woolly monkeys, fully healthy with none of these ailments of the elders in our, in our, in our um, country. So I started to just realize how everything, I had been really manipulated. And it was another breaking open um, both seeing the destruction of the rainforest and oppression of people and living a whole nother way, spending a month with this tribe. The, the reason they took me, my professor and his partner, who is a Peruvian, um, went to the chief because I said, I feel really called to be down here. I didn't know what was calling me. It just felt like I have to be with these people. And he told, um, he told the, the chief said, is he an anthropologist? Does he have a degree? Does he work for the government? And all the answers were no, and that's the only reason they, they allowed me to come um, and stay with them. And I'm, you know, I'm aware of the paradox of a white person with privilege being there. And um, also, that was the second time when I returned to the United States, I couldn't return. It was almost like when I tried to return to eighth grade. And I felt like I had to divide myself again. Like I, my, I feel every human being has an indigenous soul. White people have a deep history in Europe of connection to the land and ancestors. And that, that, that was broken a long time ago. But my indigenous soul was called forth. And I experienced um, a life way more beautiful than what I was experiencing in Gloucester. You know, during this time, my friend Aaron OD'd and died of heroin and other dear friends that I've lost to overdose and um, yeah, just so much heartbreak. And so I, I almost dropped out of college and I was questioning everything. And again, people just said, you're going crazy. And so I, again, kind of split myself and kept a foot in each world. I started to really read and learn about nature-based people. And um, that led me Sadly, to the history of indigenous people in America, that was nowhere in my high school education. And I had to go to Ecuador and be in the rainforest to actually realize about the beauty of the hundreds of nations that lived in North America and also similar oppressions and genocide. So, yeah, there was lots of anger. And I, I, I began participating in direct actions to shut down the expansion of the Burlington Police Department to shift the money to the homeless in Burlington, occupying the state capitol. But it was really reactive and ungrounded. But I was just like, gosh, why didn't anyone tell me this? You know, 
So it was another moment of like ripping my psyche open, both beautifully and unraveling. I was just felt like everything I thought I knew dissolved. Okay, so a foot in both worlds. What's next? Where do you go from there? So I'm talking about leaving college, talking to one of my best friends, Derek Geary and others, and really um, that similar and different experience of walking into eighth grade. Now I'm walking to the college campus being like, what are we doing? <laughs> like uh, innocence is lost and realizing everything I do participates in racism, white supremacy, destruction of nature, which I love. And um, so I, um, I get connected to a professor, Stephanie Kaza, who is Buddhist and um, wrote Dharma Rain and looked at kind of intersectionality and integral. She would bike to school. She did a lot of justice work and activism. She talked about how when we're grounded and mindful and connected to whatever we call love, spirit, God, Buddha, nature, the Tao, that we have a source behind us that makes our work that much more powerful. So he, she had spent time at Green Gulch and meditation practice. So she took me under her wing and was like, you have all this wisdom from your time in, in Ecuador, and I want you to help bring that out. I was an assistant in one of her classes, and um, that was a huge to start seeing like, okay, and she really encouraged me to do as much as I could out of the classroom. So I did an apprenticeship at Shelburne Farms, which was outdoor education for public school kids. And I went and for the geology department and found trilobites in Newfoundland up in the Iapeta Sea. And it was actually cheaper, a lot of these things, and would be partly paid to just be out there in the world. And she showed me that. It's like, what if you process that grief and work through it, you have to... Um, in a way, self-initiate to start bringing healing any way you can. So everything that I saw, I would respond. I, I studied uh, a study on black bear and how ski mountains cut the black bear migration. I love to ski. So all of a sudden I was hiking up the mountain and not going to the ski place because students got super cheap ski tickets. And my anything I found out, I'd start shifting my life um, and working with different organizations um, an organization that was working against uh, sexual abuse um, in the college campus. So just getting involved, and that was a whole new opening of a... I don't even like the word activist. It's like I just think to be human, we're going to work to end harm, and not just end harm, create another beautiful pathway where you know, I started driving the van that would bring women across campus, and as a hetero male who's six foot and 200 pounds, it was a whole new world to realize there were friends who were scared to walk across campus at night. And, you know, just learning these layers of, of oppression and then, and then instantly be like, wow, I'm gonna sign up to be the van driver or whatever else I could do. So these are all breakthrough moments of both heartbreak, but then learning when I responded to the heartbreak, something, it, it healed some of the depression I think of a lot of amazing friends um, who rose out of extreme oppression as native peoples um, that that's what healed them it started to feel like what can I do for others how can I make sure what happened to me 
the kind of suicide and all the 500 years of colonization and genocide, how do I change it so this doesn't happen to the next native indigenous child? And just seeing that, um, yeah, powerful people. I, I, I didn't face that level of oppression, but it was just an invitation that we all can do that. It seems like our birthright to create a world that's more beautiful for our grandchildren or great, 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 great grandchildren or for the tree right out there, the bird. So that was a big piece of initiation, initiating action out of that trauma in the rainforest of seeing the, the oil. Yeah, that all makes sense to me. But something that doesn't make sense to me is that I think a lot of people know, I, I knew as a kid when I was in high school and college that there was oppression that there were um you know that mass-produced food like bananas were toxic for the people and toxic uh, for the planet but i still continued to eat them and buy them and i still continued to drive a car even after i watched you know al gore's movie in high school or whatever it was and so what is it about you that actually um you actually had the courage or maybe the insanity to actually um be the change and most people don't actually take that step yeah that's a great question and we've been wrestling i've been wrestling with that question i think one is the the heartbreak and in initiation at 13 realized life is short i was ready to take more risks because i had a direct experience that we die um combined with i've i've found that uh you know in a lot of the eastern wisdom traditions there's different ways of wisdom. There's like you read wisdom and agree with it. And then there's like direct experience is the highest. And having direct experience of seeing the oil and the meeting people who are sick from the banana plantations and talking to people in Ecuador, because the program was a much more radical program with Ecuadorians involved sharing. All we want is our land back. The U.S. is coming and taking the best land for coffee and bananas and sugar and the Rainforest is being clear cut and oil is being moved to the U.S. from Ecuador. And so I, I, I stand by that the direct experience, because there is this beautiful human inside, when you have a direct experience of something either really two, two sides of it, you either have a direct experience of the miraculous and you, your life then follows that or you have the direct experience of incredible heartbreak people who survive cancer or, you know, I've met people who have murdered someone and that once they murdered someone their whole life, when I met them, they were out of jail now and working to end gang violence. And they just had this light of love in their eyes. So through either like the cauldron of oppression or the grace of like the rising sun breakthrough, um, I think it's that what changes. And so the possibility lines, I don't want to go too far in the fast forward, but we take people to the middle of the water shutoffs in Detroit. We take people to the nuclear weapons plant being built at the edge of Kansas City and to have direct experience because I feel like once a human sees that, their heart responds. It's not moral actions, I should do this, which I think aren't sustainable. It's what I like uh, Arnie Nass, um, who is an activist in Europe, said beautiful acts. Like I think partly I just kept coming across this and um, starting to ask questions and realizing a lot of my female friends had experienced sexual assault or rape and, and, and just starting to like, 
allow Dominic Barter, who does work in Brazil, said to be changed by the world, you must feel the world. So I think it's three parts realizing you're going to die. So live what's in your heart. Two is direct experience of either the miraculous or real uh, hardship that makes your heart just open. And the third is um, just uh, feeling it. Because if I had a direct experience and didn't my, I was weeping in the jungles of the rainforest. I was like trying to process with other friends, like what is happening right now? And how does no one in the United States know about it? And so I, I just, because I was initiated into grief work through my dad's loss and my mom of a grief tender, I just would go to those places. And um, I, I don't know, I just grabbed these random quotes, but one is embrace your grief uh, for though for there your soul will grow or the deeper the sorrow the greater the joy by William Blake it's like I that's what I think happened I had no choice anymore because to be human I had to respond with whatever way I could to uplift and not participate in harm it's interesting that two ways that our hearts can crack open and I think I had the opposite experience or the the other end of the spectrum where my heart was cracked open by more grace and beauty and I think that's been a dynamic in our relationship is I kind of tend to see the light and you tend to see the dark and um, but one of the things that I see from this perspective of the light is that incidents like having your father killed or murdered at the age of 13 actually makes you can make you more human and can actually create the change that we need to be in order to be more fully human. Um, but the part of me that questions that is, um, is hearing about um, your brother who maybe had the opposite response or the opposite outcome from that experience. And I'm wondering if you feel comfortable speaking about that and speaking about the two different paths that your lives took and, and maybe what wisdom or lessons you can take from that experience in terms of how, how one can um, process and work with grief. Yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, there there is death and sickness and this reality of the world. And so my brother wasn't able to cry. And I must have I'm guessing because he doesn't talk much about what happened with dad. But um, watching my mom and I embrace and crying and grieving and him not being able to access it. And, um, you know, it coming out in anger, like punching a hole in the wall or getting frustrated with me and giving me a beating. Um you know, even then, on some level, I knew just he was suffering. And I think this is is a we're not given the tools like it's not his fault. And, and my mom tried her best, but she's a single mom working just to keep us with a home, you know. And so um, and I see that when we close to those, we're closing off these potential breakthroughs you know or we close off to a miraculous potential because it's scarier we like the predictable um we're taught in society that security and safety are more valuable than like risk and you know i think a helen keller like your life is a daring adventure or it's you know not fully lived i don't know the exact quote but it really resonates so i see that there's these moments for all of us and when i meet people doing miraculous work I, I've followed the lives and studied lives and met people and it's always something like I almost died of cancer or I um, was in this terrible automobile accident or 
I was down and out and someone came to help me, you know, that grace and those moments they chose to open to them. And so uh, if we created a culture that taught us to open to those moments instead of closing down, imagine if at 13 I came in and there's like counselors doing grief work and someone who's like, yeah, that was an initiation moment. And here's, you know, reframed what had happened so I didn't feel crazy. Um, that's the kind of uh, society I'd love. Like K through 12 is all about similar a lot of nature-based societies. Like they're, they're praying and dreaming about what this new spirit is for the community. What is your gift to the community? It's a community's responsibility to figure out a child what their gift is. So imagine in kindergarten, it's like, hey, here's Ethan, a new being in the world. What's your gift to our community? It's our responsibility to find it as adults and then finding it and nurturing like, oh, your gift is your good listener or your gift is your risk taker or you're great with your hands or you're a healer. All I had was a kindergarten being like, are you going to be a fire department or please, you know, like I really not. I, I believe someone's soul calling can be to, to be a, a fire. I have a friend who's a fire jumper and another one who works the fire department. Incredible risk takers to like save lives. So that very well could be your soul journey. But when our menu is just so small, it restricts this potential. So, yeah, that's the part of the world I want is just saying like, yeah, to my daughters, anything you want to be like, I'm behind you 100 percent, you know, and let's let's name these gifts that we see in them. So I think it's a both. It's nobody's fault. I want to make sure in the interview, no one's feeling like, oh, I messed up. Ethan decided to open. And I decided to close. But it's just you're listening to this in this moment and we can open uh, I'm opening to trauma from the past and learning to heal and um, that we can create support networks that my brother didn't have. What are the gifts that you wish somebody saw in you when you were a child that weren't named? My intuitive sense of, of inequality and power over, the power over instead of power with, that um, I was just a troublemaker, you know? I was always told I was bad. I I got 820 combined on the SAT. I was told I was stupid, you know, indirectly. Um, so I wish someone just told me like, yeah, you're you're a, like you're a, you rip down illusion. You like you stand up. You, you have courage to stand up to power over and to have an adult just initiate me and be like, hey, here's what's happening in our town instead of just like blocking doors in your school or um, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with these authority figures, we can be using this to build up the world that we want to see. So, yeah, that would have been incredible because I thought something was wrong with me. Um, and I had to learn these lessons because I also grew up with a lot of violence, a lot of fighting. Um, <clears throat> in my last fight, with, I, I didn't initiate fights, but was in a lot of rumbles and a lot of... Um, violence that was just normal in in that town and the last time was in college i was um walking with two female friends and there was some frat brothers kicking someone with dreadlocks there's three frat brothers at late at night and we're on like the walking path and the guy was on the ground and he was just kicking him and so it's like i committed like i'm not going to solve things with just violence it's just violence begets violence and um i in the my two friends were like, stop it, stop it. So I went up and was like, he's down, stop kicking him. And like, they wouldn't stop. And then I just became the defender. But in all I knew, and I 
beat up those three people and one um, was really beat up and I went to see his face after and went up to him and said like I'm committing never to do this again um, and I also feel like there's a part of my warrior that's blocked because of that because um, when we're initiated to know how to use that power in a way that heals and builds life um, so I'm still struggling with you know I had to learn how to break that cycle um, but not I don't think I did it in total harmony of honoring all my parts and I, I just want to say I honor too that um, when people are oppressed you know as Martin Luther King said riots are the voice of the voiceless like anger initiates as we've just seen with the the um, murder of George Floyd like anger initiates and then there has to be vision and a new world to make a new movement sustainable so I, I don't pass judgment to those who defend their children or their land like the Zapatistas and people who are great teachers and um, how do we come to a world where um, we can achieve protection without the cycle of violence um, yeah thinking of the um, Kazuhaga's new book, book on nonviolence is a non-white person writing about it um, uh, yeah just as a teacher of how do we how to incorporate all these pieces to create a new world and not making things black and white but yeah so many times I wish I had the wisdom of an elder so you met this professor in college who became a mentor of sorts and um, where did that take you in your journey next I, I think the next big moment was um, I had end up going into education and doing outdoor education and working with kids from Baltimore and in, in LA and some people who are less fortunate and bringing them into nature, seeing the healing of nature and creation. And um, that even reached its edge where I'm like, well, education, there seems to be more that's needed. So in 1996, initiated a journey around the world, um, writing to a bunch of public school classrooms in the US before the internet. and. Um, saying we're going to go not as tourists or not, not extracting, but we're going to go trying to be mutual aid, just serving and trying to also steer away from white savers and just saying, let's show up to these countries and t have them tell them what they need. And so we did a year long journey, which led us to um, amazing projects. Um, some of them were the Penang, uh, the farms of people bringing back organic agriculture and bringing food into the cities in Singapore and working with protecting areas like in Sumatra, rehabilitating orangutans with amazing Indonesian conservationists. And um, yeah, that was in transformational to dip into that again in a way that brought American public school kids into these issues of wrestling. This was when there was like in Indonesia, the one of the <clears throat> Flores, one of the great protectors of human rights, who was a terrorist by the Indonesian government, was winning the Nobel Peace Prize and um, reaching out to one guy, Mathai, who was doing the Green Belt Movement, who was in jail when I came to Kenya. Um, and just feeling like I can give these 6,000 kids total a different story, you know, through a lens and getting kids from those countries to write to these kids so that was a another transformative moment um, where I started to also look at the global community and rethink 
my position. Um, that was with my friend Brian Thomas, and we it's called Teachers on Earth, and we went and um, did that for a year, and came back and reported to um, these students what it was like to go to a place following the leadership of the local people and serving opposed to just being tourists and influence hundreds of tourists along the way like what are you doing who are you writing to why are you going to serve this project and so really questioning that kind of extractive um, practice of the west so that was all building up and meanwhile i'm doing transformations in between like right after that trip after no violence for a year in all these places people told me was dangerous like africa and indonesia i come home and crossing the country was like held at gunpoint and held hostage and had $500 robbed from me by a bunch of white guys in rural Tennessee and you know had a knife cut you know someone sticking the chair between my legs with the knife and realizing just this like people in Africa like America is crazy like mass shootings and all this stuff that was happening so kind of um, in between a lot of moments of experience again the brokenness of our culture but um, it all built up to 99, which I call the big leap. <laughs> all these small changes. I feel like in a way I knew at age 20 what I needed to do and it took me nine years to prepare and become courageous enough and build my risk muscle. Um, yeah, I'm just wanting to stop and see up until age 29 if there's any questions arising from no. So what is it at age 20 that you suspected that you needed to be? Um, just as imperfectly as I could to try to my life embody the world I wanted to see. And trying to do that in every moment to the best of my ability. Uh, it was terrifying at, at the time. Um, on this round the world trip, I had also inherited $100,000 when my grandfather died. Um, which would have gone to my dad, but went to my brother and I. And I, um, in that moment, even I'm like, I don't need it. I just paid off my college debt, and I forgave a bunch of money I'd lent to friends. And but I was like, I in that moment, it was another moment. Like I just want to give it away. But of course, I told friends, just just hold on to it. Like you can live your dream now. Like the message was, you can live because you have money. And so I wrestled with that. But it was yeah, it was. Uh, I didn't have a community of support. Um, and I was still facing fear of, I, 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 I was terrified of losing belonging. That already I was on the edge of people thinking like, whoa, he's getting arrested and he's doing these things. And that a big leap would just, my story in my head would create total isolation from family and friends. So tell me about the leap. I just reached a moment. I, I had ended up at Aprovetra Research Center, which was a, both a permaculture center and a center doing direct action um, in, in Oregon. And it was there that I realized I was living in a treehouse and without electricity in the treehouse and a collective of people trying to imagine a, a, a better world um, that I just realized I have to do it and I, I did it I talked to friends and came up with one I was gonna give all my money and almost all my possessions away and that it was both spiritual and knowing that so many people have been kept out of wealth through racism and, uh, and classism and also 
I, I still think of the quote by Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu, which is to gain everything, give everything away, like to really get that the whole universe is supporting you. Um, I realized because of my position and privilege, it was less risky for me because I could go, if it all failed, my mom would take me on the couch, you know, so there was some safety net. But I decided to give all the money away and I wanted to do it as mindfully as possible. And um, at that point, it built up to 150000 and I that was the first big leap. And I gave 50000 to organizations stopping war and the causes of war, and which was mainly affecting brown and black people around the world. Another 50000 was given towards ending poverty and classism and people being systematically kept out of you know, stolen money from slavery and genocide and occupying indigenous land. And the last 50,000, because a friend said, what's really important to you? I said, well, my friends and family, I actually gave that money, but I didn't want to just have them put it in the bank. So it was called the Dream Fund, where I told people you have to use it for something important to your heart. Um, you can't just put it in the bank. And so some people, like my Aunt Penny, had just inherited more than me, but I was giving them I gave it with no conditions. If someone had a lot of money, the one condition was use it for your dreams, which was incredible. The letters I got of what people did with it and um, how they were moved and challenged by that act. Is there an example or two of how people used that money? Yeah. Um, my friend Helena um, used the money to, she was at Chelsea High School, which is the inner city high school outside of Boston with the metal detectors and the whole nine yards and ran an amazing science program. And she invested it in a, uh, a garden, a garden for the school to start um, giving people the, the justice of growing food and being connected to earth. Another friend sponsored someone from Baltimore, uh, a child, uh, a black child to afford a, a week trip canoeing in a camp on the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, two other, a couple were like, they decided to do ballroom lessons. They were like, we just want to do this for each other. And they danced. And another friend, Greg, put it up on his, um, put it up on his bulletin board. And he looked at it every morning and he never cashed it, the money I gave him. But he said, every day I thought, what is it I want to do? What is my dream? And so the money, you know, never went to him, but he said, use it for someone else. But that was worth it. Because now I'm like purified and like really thinking, what's my dream? So, so many responses. And um, I waited. It took a year because I gave it to people in person and said, this is the dream fund. And um, it was an act outside of capitalism to say, here's something different, um, which was also a different ripple than just giving it to amazing organizations working on class and racial justice and ending war. So, and then simultaneously, I gave all my possessions away, my tent, my binoculars and I kept my bike in a wool blanket and my panniers and the third part of the leap was um, I decided to try life without the automobile and I never really used computers so I just like didn't like screens so I'm like in 94 I'd gotten out of airplanes 97 I stopped watching movies not that I don't believe they're a great form of storytelling but I just like I want to live life and if I was to die and an angel came and said, every show you ever watch, you could trade in for that much more life. I knew in my head, I'm like, I'd do that in a second. Just to be with someone, kissing someone or jumping in the water with someone. Another friend who loved movies said, I would never give up my movies for, for you know. So it's all our personal leaning. 
so there's all these jumps. I made a commitment that I wasn't going to ever walk past someone who was homeless. I'd always stop and I would not erase anybody with, you know, again, I'm still working on my internal patriarchy and heteropatriarchy and racism. So I did the best I could for a 29 year old indoctrinated into white supremacy and patriarchy, but I gave it my all and um, it was terrifying. Um, and it, I, I, the one thing I could tell people that was super helpful, a lot of my choices I did unilaterally before. And this one, I went home and told friends and family, when you see me next, I'm going to have given all my money away. I'm not going to be in vehicles. I'm not going to walk by a homeless person if we're like meeting in Boston. And I told everyone ahead of time and, and asked them their thoughts. And some people were really concerned and some were like, thank you. But it wasn't unilateral anymore. It was also the way I did it felt like it was a co-creation. And my grandmother was like, I'm never going to see you. And so I promised my grandmother I'd see her three times as much after the transformation. And all of these profound things happened with my grandmother, who was like terrified. Um, I couldn't drive to her house anymore. So I had to bike and take commuter rail and I had to spend the night. And I was the first adult grandson to spend the night in her house. We woke up and talked about her son and my dad. And um, she started crying in the morning. We're on her deck eating breakfast. And she grabbed my hands and said, I'm so glad you don't drive anymore <laughs> after being the biggest resistor um, to see like actually my story was wrong. Connection deepened, meaning deepened when I was with my buddies from Gloucester and Boston would stop to offer, ask what a homeless person need. Like you, it became transformational for everyone around again, because I wasn't leaving anyone out. I had told them ahead of time. So that allows people to prepare for the shift, you know, because they, they were terrified of losing me. Like, oh, one of my Gloucester friends said, I'm terrified because you're going to realize I'm just a loser and leave me. Yeah, some heartbreaks coming up of just how many people are convinced that they're broken, that they're disposable, that they're not beautiful. The self-hatred and just more, maybe more revolutionary was just to say you're beautiful. You know, like um, friends who have healed from addiction in Gloucester was just miraculous lives to just um, stay alive. And so, you know, that was also healing that I have all my friendships with my hometown friends, even with the choices I made and that no one's left out you know I think a big shadow is we change and then want to dump all the people in our old life and what a loss that is because I learned so much um, so yeah that's another reason that I want to transform everything because it's heartbreaking to see that voice in me and others that are convinced I'm useless I'm disposable I'm erased in all communities the black community the indigenous community the white community um, and how to, yeah, have a revolution of belonging. So I'm just saying like those acts that were so sensational, giving all my money away and having nothing may have not been the most remarkable, the most remarkable. We're sitting with my grandmother and having her transformation or telling my friend, like I would never abandon them and they're beautiful. Um, could have been the most profound part of that.
So you've made this leap at 29 years old, I assume in the height of your Saturn return. <laughs> <laughs> I found out later when I learned about their modes of tracking our life. Yeah, same exact thing happened to me. I um, just turned 30 years old and my journey started when I was just about 28. Um, one thing that I was just thinking about when you were sharing your story is both of us have had the privilege of traveling all over the world, of, of having a lot of money in our bank account um, at one point, of being able to give that money away, of um, kind of chasing and living our, our wildest dreams. And I'm just thinking about this modern world and this, you know, some of the the um, like some of the recommendations that you that you often have and tell people is to not fly and to um, stay place based and do stuff like this. But. I think a lot about, you know, I would never be where I am right now if it wasn't for the wild, crazy life I lived for 28 years uh, that involved flying all over the world and experiencing all these different cultures and people and um, and making a lot of money. And all those experiences kind of shaped me into who I am today. And I'm very conscious about sort of shaming or looking down on folks who are doing the very thing that I did, because I know that while it's d destroying the environment and causing climate change and doing all these things that we obviously can't sustainably continue doing. Um, it also in many ways is, is shaping those people to be the full humans that they will hopefully become. So I guess it's a paradox, right? And how do you, how do you think about all that having uh, looked yeah. back at your journey now? Yeah. A few things just to clarify when I inherited the money, I had zero money, but I had no debt which for our family was like a big deal. And so there was a, then all of a sudden I had 150,000 in my account at 26 with no dependents. So it was like, I think that allowed me to make the shift because I'd been okay until 26. But yeah, that's, a, that's an incredible question. I've really wrestled with it. I'm sure it's gonna change, but my thought is I traveled because everything incredible about North America or pre-Europeans was erased. Like there were these incredible, intact, amazing nations that had survived and 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 held their wisdom, and yet I they were erased from history. And my work in Detroit and my work in St. Louis and Oakland, just um, realizing that. All of it and more was right here. If I had like broke down the barrier and realized like, wow, if I had, I came to my, my grandfather lived in Maine and, and I would visit him at Port Clyde and now coming to Maine and before coming, learning the Wabanaki history and the amazing Confederacy and the Penobscot and, and learning about the work of Wabanaki Reach and the Truth and Reconciliation and Esther Ann and Sherry Mitchell, all these amazing people um, that didn't exist. And so I feel like one, how do we hunt for that lesson right here so the healing can be here? So I didn't have anyone to tell me that, but now I'm trying to be that like maybe at 15, if I had that wisdom, I wouldn't have decided to go on a trip around the world at 26 and doing service. So there's a paradox that, yes, that was the arc I had to take. But if we have an initiation of humanity through our public schooling and through our community, that we can have that a different way. 
and I and I know it's possible because that has been happening for in cultures for hundreds of thousands of years. So that's a, a piece that yes, it's a paradox that I had to go to Ecuador to have the realization, and again, I didn't have anyone grounding me in the incredible wisdom and exquisite beauty of um, what wisdom was here in the nations of the indigenous people of Turtle Island. That's one. And two, I realized that this is the choice where I've been led. And I know the world is complex. So my friend Chris, who puts his body on the line for Palestinians and to protect, uh, you know, occupied Palestine, he flies to Palestine to be a human shield for peace team. And I, you know, it, it's very, um, it is very complex. Uh, but I do think because we're addicted and because we're shut down and because we're not belong or have love for who we are, a lot of the motions I saw in my earlier life was to belong. It was, you know, it's just like, oh, you travel. That's what you do if you're middle-class white American and I to just listeners to think like what's my motivation like what's calling me to just stop for a moment and have conversations like I could have just given my money away and as a reaction but I had long conversations with people that I respected and people from different positionalities and people who identified as queer or people of color people who lived in poverty people who were rich and and uh, I'm glad that <clears throat> life had slowed me down but i just think we also need to both accept paradox and start looking deeper to what can we what can we achieve in our own soul's journey that can reduce the harm of the initiation and that's a different answer for every person because we can't equate Potentially, Chris going to Palestine created much more healing in the human family that offsets the carbon of the planet. You know, you can't measure. You can't measure the ripples. You can just try and trust that your intention is one and look at your impacts um, and learn from it. So it is a, it is a great mystery. But I, I definitely think slowing down and wrestling with the uncomfortableness is, is healthy. You're like, I, I don't know anyone who's flying is like, yeah, I'm flying. I, it's all like, but I was totally like that for seven yeah, years. Yeah. Well, maybe. That's, but um, I uh, uh, I think I also one of my gifts of spirit is from birth. I didn't actually like going to movies or I flew once. Our grandfather flew to his back when we dropped his car off in Florida. And anytime I was in a locked area with motors, I, I felt strange. So I think it's, it's my own kind of life journey. But I do think having conversations, looking at motivation and being creative, I think this time right now requires so much imagination and creativity that we can't even imagine ways to like fulfill our needs and, and fulfill our vocation and what each unique human, you know, you're the only Tucker Walsh in, 14 billion years that will ever exist in the universe in any direction. When we think of that, it's like incredibly, incredible. You have something no one else can bring. And so how can we be so creative and imaginative to unleash each other in a way that we are 
wrestling with those paradoxes instead of just, oh, the easy way forward is let's go out to dinner and have a movie and fly and get on the internet, which may be what's required for your journey. But let's let's wrestle with it and be uncomfortable, as well as the possibilities I've had to wrestle with. How are we replaying patriarchy? How are we replaying colonial settler? You know, if I don't wrestle with that, I'm not going to be as human, even though it seems to set the PA back. So, oh, so amazing. Now you've slowed down because you're following the leadership of people like I'm like, yeah, because I'm realizing my journey only has meaning when every human being on the planet has full opportunity to unlock their gifts and their sole purpose. And so when I really look at what happens to someone growing up in Detroit, again, that has four times less of survival than a white baby, I'm like, I cannot be liberated until there is that upliftment of those groups. And it becomes so overwhelming, but also requires humility, creativity, imagination, grief, listening, all the things that I think Western culture has sped us up to not listen speed, addiction, and we're, you know, um, when I go back to Gloucester, one-on-one, most friends who look like they're making it, the house and the boat are like, I'm barely hanging on. I'm barely hanging on to my marriage. I'm barely hanging on to my sanity. I'm feeling something in me is off. They may not be reading about Standing Rock or climate change, but we're human. Whatever's happening on the planet, we feel in our bodies. But then modern psychologists tell them, you have a problem. Here's the antidepressant. Depression is real. Antidepressants have saved some of my friends' lives from taking their lives, and then they find more holistic ways. But what about we have community and belonging to hold grief and depression? You know, like instead of a pill, because what we're what we are is lonely. You know, we're depressed because it's a messed up culture, but we're told it's us. We're we're wrong. So it is. Yeah, it's so much. Everything needs to be transformed and we need to be so creative and we need grace. I mean, I feel I need ancestors and spirit, uh, the miraculous. There's no way looking at the world right now without the miraculous that there's going to pull off an actually beloved community for all people and all beings. So that's exciting, but also humbling because the Western world teaches we can do it. We can do We can grow as much food as we want. We can go to the moon. We there's like an arrogance that we can control nature and it's a great hum- humbling that no, we're actually all traumatized and psychotic. And that's like, you know, AA, we first have to admit I'm broken, traumatized and psychotic and we're beautiful. Now what? <laughs> now what do we do? Let's take those broken pieces and make the most amazing mosaic we've ever seen in our life. Beautiful. So speaking of miracles, maybe you could tell me about a, a small miracle that happened to you when um, you came face to face with the mountain lion. Yeah, you know, when I when I was going to take my leap, I had this like story. Um, I hadn't been introduced to Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. Well, it's not Joseph Campbell. He looked at cultures around the world through all history, indigenous cultures, different civilizations and realized there's this path. And the hero's journey is like you go through the threshold you get called and the call to adventure is great. You're like, woo! But then you come through a threshold and then when you go through the threshold, all your powers are gone and you are ripped to shreds and then new things come you didn't expect. And then at the bottom, which I thought was going to be like Sesame Street, like little squirrels would be like, you got out of cars and gave your money away. I met the dragon. It was dismembered and then put back together. And so what happened is I started to act 
in the the third part was I was going to bike across the country helping whoever I saw. And I always loved superheroes. And in 1999, superheroes weren't really cool. There's no superhero movies and the comics were at all time low in sales. So I was going to name myself the Blazing Echidna Bee, invite people to bike and just like Daredevil or the Black Panther swoop around waiting to see who needs help. Bike across the country, dumpster eating dumpstered food. So that was the third leap and uh, that was coming up. But once I leaped, my girlfriend left me. She had an affair and left me and I showed up in Lansing, Michigan. She said, done. So I lost a partner I thought I was going to marry. Um, a lot of people, as I was giving the gift, some people were excited. Some people thought I was dying of cancer or were really worried about me. I had some like sits with some friends being like, are you dying? Like, have you lost your mind? So it was a mixed bag. And then I'm in Oregon in Afrovecho. And as I did it, I was a mirror to progressive white culture that were like, hey, we're going to the farmer's market. I give $100 to that, you know, indigenous organization in Oregon. And I'll send them, like giving all my money away and moving with my own body and not walking by homeless. It was a really hard mirror. I didn't get much support, paradoxically. People were like, oh, I tried to do that when I was 20. It's never going to work. Or where do you meet someone? And have a family. And so there was actually more of that than celebrate the thing um, besides the mountain lion, which I'm about to get to one person going crazy for your crazy idea. One person can guarantee that it's going to happen because I remember Helena Marcus, who worked in the Chelsea inner city high school and is an amazing friend. I walk, we were, I was telling all my friends. And so I told her like, I'm giving all my money away. I'm going to ride across the country serving people. I'm not going to walk by a home, like all the things I was going to try to embody. And um, and I said, this, and here's some of the money for you for whatever you want to do. She had all her lesson plans and stuff after school in her hand. It was before, like, you know, a lot of computers. And she threw them all up into the air, like vanilla envelope. She's just like, yes, yes. She's like, finally, something doing, something doing different. I don't know if it'll work, but I feel so alive. Like, and that was like, I think the greatest cheer that just made me like literally one person, how many times one person saved my life. And to remember that, that your soul journey may be just celebrating someone when they're like, you know what? I'm going to pogo stick painted purple across the country for peace. And you're just like, sure, I'll bike with you across Iowa. Just like entering that. Um, so anyhow, I'm in Oregon. It's a couple months in. It's very difficult. I took on a lot of transformation at once. A lot of doubt. I'm biking in the rain alone. Um, folks are going apple picking and I wanted my life to be the same. So I'm planning to bike 40 miles over the mountain to the orchard and biking back. I have to leave two hours before everyone else. They're about to make pancakes, which was like my comfort food growing up. Pancakes in the morning was a good, happy moment for the family. And... Um, People, you know, unconscious were like, hey, sorry, you're going to miss the pancakes. Enjoy the ride. Because in a way, the, the most courageous friend said, I hope you fail because it's so uncomfortable for me. Um, very few friends are able to admit that, that there was a part of them that hoped I failed. And so I'm leaving and everyone's like, have fun in the rain. And I, I'm biking up the mountain and I'm crying going up the mountain. I said, I'm I can't do it. I really was like, I'm done. So I'm crying saying, when I get to the orchard, I'm going to put my bike in the car. Um, I'm just going to rethink this all doubts about the superhero ride. And 
I'm coming down the mountain. It's raining. It's early in the morning. And I had done animal tracking and taught some animal tracking. I see something way ahead across the road. I fly down on my mountain bike and I just peel off the mountain road up onto the embankment. And there, standing right on the edge is a full-grown mountain lion, which for viewers or listeners, I had like tracked mountain lions in the snow and always like felt drawn to mountain lions and had never seen one, but had like really tried to. I went to the Jaguar Reserve and volunteered there in Belize and went out in the rain. And then it'd always be like, oh, we saw one, like the ranger. And so never. And there was this mountain lion 10 feet from me, staring at me. It seemed like an hour. It was probably 30 seconds. Full eye contact with a full adult mountain lion. The mountain lion slowly turned and saw all of its muscles flex and jumped over the brush into the forest. I dropped my bike and ran into the forest just going, yeah, and ran into the forest. I didn't see it anywhere. You know, it just disappeared. And I was, it was an initiation moment. It was spirit saying, like, you can do this. Because I realized if I was driving, it would have heard the car and I never would have seen it. And I would have biked over that mountain a thousand times to have that moment of, like, interbeing with another creature. And that's grace, as I feel sometimes grace comes to help us in studying the stories of so many remarkable people, seeing that that happens over and over again um, in the freedom movement of the 60s and so many um, abolitionist movements, so many amazing movements. So I showed up just like I'm, I'm it solidified me to know like there is another world. There's not much evidence. I'm not, you know, no one else was doing. I couldn't call somebody like, hey what was it like giving all your money away and deciding to bike across the country helping people and not driving and helping, you know, I, there was nobody. I mean, I knew stories of amazing people, but there was nobody. I was like, yeah, it was, it was, it was hard work to trust, but there was that grace that came. And that was a, another initiation moment where the earth came and said, we're with you. And there are moments when I feel that like the entire universe is about life supernovas birth planets and planets burp out planetary nebula and there's trillions of worlds with life we we're just looking at the comet the other night and just so ex- amazing any piece of earth will move to climax for the most life a rainforest or a coral reef it's all moving to the most diversity and most life and when i can remember that that like the entire universe is on the side of life and healing and being whole like it's more than any tank or missile, but it's so easy to forget when we're in the cauldron of brokenness. So those moments just are a lightning bolt that can keep us going for decades. So where did that lightning bolt take you? Well, um, you know, I stayed at APRO and, and um, started to also practice the integral of daily prayer and meditation and... and um, healing my body, eating from the land, um, serving. So I was working with an uh, amazing project called Grassroots Garden, which, which um, formerly homeless, um, participated in growing food and sharing it in the community and um, working a- and with kids in and out of prison and um, just getting involved in projects that were about, um, about life and about amazing stories of like, Herman, who I worked with, who fled Argentina during the dictatorship, and it's just like, you all want uh, you all want rights, but you don't want responsibilities in this country. You know, like there's a responsibility for like the least of these is is us. You know, what, what however you look at that. So that um that led to then 
this ride, um, the Hall of Justice, uh, a playoff of the Super Friends. They went to the Hall of Justice, but it was H-A-U-L, like hauling our ass for justice. And again, it's that devastation that uh, no one prepared me that when I took this huge risk, it was really challenging. I, I, I didn't instantly have the mountain lion come out. You know, I was really expecting I'll do this and then the gates will open and literally squirrels would come up to my window and be like, yes, you made it. And so similar to the Super Ride, it started with seven of us starting in Washington with the goal to ride and not know where we're going to sleep and serve whoever we met. And um, that led to a lot of m remarkable things, meeting a homeless family and giving them, uh, finding them a, a, a home for a month to get on their feet, helping to build a handicap ramp at a women's shelter that the women had received death threats in Idaho um, because of someone in a rural county standing up for ending violence against women. And amazing, amazing. I mean, there's so many miracles that happened on that ride. But two weeks into it, the whole goal was we ride. We don't know where we're going to sleep. We serve. It was it was what, you know, in the Indian tradition, karmic yoga is like serving others to forget ourselves and remember we're all one. And um, some of the superheroes, Yankee Rose hurt his knee and had to drop out. Um, other heroes were like, hey, can we stop and go to this park? And it's like, wow, that, you know, we're trying to do this experiment. I'm not trying to control it. But by week two, everyone had dropped out except for Turquoise Seeker, who had never biked before, got a used bike and was a, a evangelical Christian at that time saying like, hey, that's what Jesus did, went around helping people. But all these other people dropped out and he, the the. The way it started, I, a friend wrote to me and said, let's walk across the country. I wrote back to him, Silver Streak, and said, how about biking across the country as superheroes, helping people? He was the initiator, again, that one person. After two weeks, he's like, we have to change how it's going. I can't, and, and I said, I have to fulfill this commitment. We're also fundraising for all these organizations for each mile we biked. Money went to these different groups. So he, I left and he wouldn't talk to me. And so, again, heartbreak. And I was, we biked out of uh, Eugene, Oregon with only two of us, Turquoise Seeker, Tur Turquoise Seeker and I. And then Ultimo Skunk showed up and we're like, let's do it. And um, then my girlfriend called at the time who left me eventually and said, look, my family's coming on the Colorado section of the ride and they just want to enjoy this vacation, all the service stuff, deal with it. And she was mad at me. And I went back to the campsite out of Oregon. I told Turquoise Seeker, I'm like, I'm quitting. Like I didn't do this to become everyone's enemy. Like I'm losing friends. I'm, and she grabbed me and it was just like, all you're doing is biking to serve people spontaneously. There's nothing wrong with it. Whatever comes in. So you drag me into this and we're going across the country. So she was like the Jaguar in the sense of just convincing me. And from there, over 51 people joined. A lot of people joined spontaneously. It's just trusting two kids. We always invite people to our meals and parks and camp and, we invited these two college kids and one of them dropped out of college because he experienced and came and met us halfway and biked with us 3,000 miles, pudding head. And just how dirt man, we volunteered at a garden growing food for those in need um, outside of Hartford, Connecticut. And um, in the morning, the wife opened the garage door and the farmer doing that was dirt man. And he had his bike and he's like, I'm riding with you. And how much spontaneously people joined us and that faith of just stick to the basics like we're not we're just riding to serve like if people get upset or hurt or can't keep up it's like we had something to do so that was that was a huge 
uh, it's that when we go for our soul journey, it will be beautiful and it will be crushing, but we're being crushed by reality because there's parts of us that need to be crushed and composted. And that's what's like sometimes daunting as I know like it's going to continue. So every new dream is like I'm not going to get around heartbreak. Like it's just about being human in relationship. So beautiful. Maybe this will be a good moment to do a little plug for the superhero ride that might be coming up potentially. Yeah. Um, there was, you know, in the end it was only going to be one ride. And that's the other thing I talk about manifesting is don't make these big plans. We did one ride and then they're like, let's do another ride. And all of a sudden there's now been 30 rides in five countries. And the biggest ride was 53 people. And there's now over 1500 people who did this kind of service initiation. And, um, it just, just trust and, and be unattached. But the superheroes started to become problematic because it was predominantly white. Um, we did have uh, diversity in the sense of um, a lot of children and elders and those who are identifying as queer and some people of color who rode. But um, it was problematic, white people biking into Detroit dressed as superheroes, you know, white saviorism, all those things. So... As superheroes became more popular and we realized that there was, um, yeah, there needed to be a transformation. So we've been kind of sitting with the superheroes, those who have been part of it. Amazing project, Superhero Training Academy out in Detroit that uh, has been initiating, mainly working with um, inner city folks in Detroit and in the Lakota Reservation doing amazing work. What would it look like? And so we're, we're thinking about in 2021, we're getting ready to launch not the superheroes, but the super organism. The Audre Lorde quote says that there will be no liberation without community. And just um, showing up in a different way, not holding up our individual like compassion man, queen bee, but holding ourselves up as a collective we gain power and being more anonymous. We're the super organism and doing the ride in a reparations paradigm where we're shifting uh, wealth that we're doing more uh, mythic building of the new world and kits for towns or people to initiate. And um, we had some of that in the ride. One of our big rituals was celebrating local superheroes. So we always took the energy from us and gave a badge and circled them up. And like we've, the universe is sent to say, you are a superhero doing amazing work, like the woman opening the woman's shelter in the middle of rural Idaho, for example, um, which was very profound. So that's uh, going to be a new experiment. Um, so get in touch if there's interest. If you like to bike, dumpster and glean your food and do spontaneous service um, with awareness of privilege and, and with a justice lens and just in a lens of fun and creative craziness to make change. Um, come join the super organism. How can those who are interested find out more? Um, you can connect with uh, Super Training Academy. They do have a website or you can uh, connect with the Possibility Alliance in Maine, um, 85 Edgecombe Road, Belfast, Maine, 04915, phone number 207-338-5719. That's 207-338-5719. Call now and you can get a costume to join the superorganism. Um, Free of charge. Yes. And it's all done in the gift. So we're all out there just giving what we have. Um, I also with the heartbreak if it's okay before shifting just like one or two of the miraculous moments in the superhero ride um 
and so many of them happened, but we um, we had signed up to do a sing-along at a center that worked with adults with Down syndrome in New York. And this bridge was closed, and the next bridge for cars was no big deal. And the next bridge was 20 miles up from the town we're in. And we came to the bridge, and the police were like, you know what? The mayor couldn't even cross this bridge. Like It was all shut down with construction equipment. We're like, look, we have this appointment with this center. And um, we we said like we're sent by the universe you know we're in superhero mode and the um person at the bridge we went to another person and they called this person and called the next thing we're like in a higher up of the uh dock in new york city and we get to the top of the rung in in new york state and they said let the superheroes through so we're police the mayor no one could go through it's just like these things would open and we're biking across you know 11 of us in our costumes and capes with Backos and the bridge half apart, like on our way to this incredible um, experience with the folks. And these these kind of openings happen all the time. We were uh, this one moment, which was another uh, amazing moment, is we were in Pueblo, Colorado, and we went and helped move a, a museum that focused on the cultural history of those of Mexico and Central America. And we were in the office and we we're going to help move the um, the museum and um, the cultural center. And someone said, oh, so-and-so's birthday. They're on the, it's their birthday today. They're up one floor. So Tortuga, El Tortuga was an amazing guitarist. And we got permission to burst into her office and El Tortuga's up on her desk and we're singing, you say it's your birthday. And the superheroes around and we clapped and she's like, oh my gosh, this is the most incredible. Who put you up to this? And we're like, the universe. And everyone was laughing and it was this incredible moment. And then we helped and move the cultural center. And then we left Pueblo and fast forward, we're uh, through Colorado in the flats of Kansas. And um, we are biking and the police pull us over and we tell him we're just a service group. And he said, well, this is my place for the next 20 miles. You can camp anywhere you want in any kind of town park. And we're setting up in this town park and this truck pulls over and this old man and his wife, he rolls down the window and he says, put your tents away. We're like, uh, I walked up and said, I'm sorry. You know, the officer said we could camp in any of these town parks. And he's like, put your can't tents away. You're coming home with us. And he looked a little upset. And um, we packed up and followed the car to his house and his wife fed us. And she was like, had seen, because we we're on the, like National Bikeway on that time of the route. So I see so many bike bicyclers, but I saw you and I told my husband that God told me you needed to come home with us. And my husband wasn't really happy about it. We went and he had sh Navy ships all over his walls and had been in the Navy. And um, he just thought we were a bunch of like leftist freaks. And so he brings us into the house and um, we uh, tell them like, yeah, we, we do... Um, you know, we do this service and he, she had talked to her, her daughter earlier on her birthday, but not since we're just meeting them. The phone rings and we hear, oh, superheroes. Oh, and it was her daughter that we had sung to the birthday in Pueblo calling to like share more, you know, to check in, but share the story. And she's like, they're in our house right now. The same people. And so then we were all just, then the dad who was like 
my wife has this crazy idea. All of a sudden, there was all this love in the room. Like, oh my God, God told her because she felt somehow we had affected her daughter, you know, a hundred miles back. And all of a sudden, we were old friends and sharing. And someone who was in the Navy with people who were like war tax resistors were like sharing community. And those things happen all the time. We'd help someone and meet someone and we just saw this map of, of uh, unfold of what happens when we when we uh, go out to become community again. Beautiful. It reminds me of the saying, if you take one step towards God, God will take two steps towards you. Yeah. There's a part of me, and I'm sure maybe some listeners at home that are thinking at this point, like, all right, screw this guy. All these miracles happened to him. I never had a miracle that's happened to me in my life. This guy just goes out and all this amazing stuff happens and he's just tapped into the universe somehow and here I am sad and lonely and listening to this podcast. Um, what do you, what would you say to someone who's feeling that way, to someone who's kind of, um, I, I think that's a little bit how I felt about you when I first met you was um, some jealousy, some envy and some, um, a little bit of frustration that the same level of epicness of your story hasn't happened in my own life I, I would say that totally makes sense and I would say that we're as a civilization failing those people who are not getting the support and and also to know that the ride was a mix of heartbreak and miracles friends leaving never talking to me again and on the second ride my mom fell and put her rib through her lung and almost died and that every journey is a mix of everything because we live and die and we get sick and there's also even I totally empathize too because even after those moments I lose faith I've been in more of a desert the last couple of years and um, wrestling with you know I'll share about meeting my soulmate and wrestling with what's happening there and um and there's some days, even the Possibility Alliance, where a really bad day, I'm like on the side of the hideaway with a flat tire, just like, come on, 18-wheeler, swerve. Like, I can't do it. So I, yeah, it's um, even with, yeah, it's, it's, it's just to say it's amazing that you've kept breathing to stay here on the earth and to, to keep opening. And that I think it's, the responsibility for people who have had privilege or have had heartbreak and have had like an amazing mom to help transform it. Um, I didn't have to go through sexual abuse or physical violence from my parents. And I realized that that's group, you know, that's remarkable how many people just from the beginning. And so I have to say like those who have had that, we have more beautiful work to do to break down the walls so that everyone can have support. And that 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 feeling coming up is just a sign that there's so much more work to do. And now knowing that I'm just one of 7.8 billion and I am limited in my own <clears throat> my own story, you know, of what what shifts and change will happen and that we have to also accept limitations. Wow. Um, maybe we'll get to it after, but there are I've learned later practices to build our capacity to take risk and be resilient in heartbreak um and 
Yeah, I also, a lot of people have said one of my gifts of spirit, which the person listening has a gift that hasn't been revealed, and that's society's responsible for that lack of it. And it's different than mine, but I, I, my mom said I was always a huge risk taker from birth, just like had this kind of gift of fearlessness, and that's not from any work. And so that has allowed me to persevere, but it's not, you know, people are all have different gifts. So then I realized, like, if I just keep people saying, leap, leap, I'm missing the beautiful piece that everyone's unique. Everyone's unique. And it's actually to slow down and listen and be like, what is it? What is the gift that makes you come alive that needs to be unleashed? And it's, it's going to be totally different than what my life looked like. It's interesting to think about also, you know, that you're an eight on the Enneagram, which is the challenger and you're very extroverted. You're extremely extroverted. And um, and those things kind of naturally lead themselves to be seen. You know, you're out in public. You're kind of the one that um, people are looking at. People are watching. You're, you're taking up a lot of energy in the room for really be- in a really beautiful healing and transformative way. Um, but that many people's gifts are much quieter and much less visible um, or they're happening in a way that's um, maybe more one-on-one or in, in yeah. quiet, intimate spaces. And yeah, so I would just say that um, there's something remarkable about your story as a filmmaker because it's so visual and tangible. And um, there's something about your story that allows us to see ourselves in you through this very vis- through these very visible acts of courage and surrender and faith and trust in the universe um, but that the, can happen in, in really um, beautiful ways that are much more imperceptible um, yeah. or much more much can be much quieter but equally as miraculous yeah one thing I can offer too is the kind of uh, possibility support of just some people reach out to us and we just say like we ha- you know it takes perseverance it was nine years of waiting to be able to leap and it was um, how to how to support our each other's resiliency and you know there's another layer it's true that I had to later apologize to a lot of the um, female identifying superheroes that were saw my intention but realized the impact I was a white hetero person taking up a lot of space and there's something there's just such a balance we have to do because there are power over structures of white supremacy and patriarchy that I I have to realize that I can be this tree that like goes up to the sun but realize that wow I had this whole garden team around me being like white male I'm going to be called on as I'm a kid in the classroom you know, if I had been black in the fights I'd been in, I blo- broke and stole stuff from police cars, I uh, put someone in the hospital, I would have been incarcerated, you know. So it's the realizing that so that I'm also the balance of how now, how do I use my gifts to support, for example, recently being able to work with a, a mentor, Sherry Mitchell, um, Penobscot woman, created Healing Turtle Island and wrote Sacred Instructions. How can I like get behind that work which aligns with me and really uplift in a way that I'm I'm really listening and following a lead. And so there's this balance. I don't think the universe is asking us to be small at this time. It's asking us to be incredibly creative. And also, I have to choose to take up less space so that other voices 
and other perspectives are heard and other leadership and what's happening right now with the Black Lives Matter uprising and how to just get behind it and end up being an anonymous person in the street saying, yes, this has to end. And in that role is beautiful, too. So it's it's the wisdom, too, of as we're rising up, we also have to be aware of what is around us systemically and also know that beyond that, all traditions point to ancestry and spirit that transcends that. So, yeah, so that's been part of the work is after that, I had to then wrestle with these layers of, and I still am, of racism and patriarchy and how to be, uh, how to follow spirits leaning in a way that is, I could be creating harm in one way and beauty in another, but if I'm really about lessening harm, I have to be aware of structures so that I move. It's just like if there, to cross that, I would be like ecstatic following my soul's purpose and the whole yard is full of tiny snails and eggs wanting to hatch and, and I just run across. I'm like, look at me. I'm just going to run across and follow spirit because I'm not slowing down and being wise. I'm going to cause a lot of harm and I think I, I did do that and I am love myself and forgiving myself that in the process and thank goodness I listen so that now I look at the field and I'm like, wow, I want to lift up queer voices and people of color and, and give space and resources because um, there's so much resiliency and wisdom from these groups that, that we all need at this moment. So it's this balance. And I think the danger is for what I see a lot of white hetero men totally shutting down and being like, I'm just not going to do anything. And that's not what people of color are asking. They're asking to like initiate your gifts, but in a way that requires us to be uncomfortable and constantly get feedback. It's like, go when you're asked to show up and don't go when you're asked not to go. You know, like, so it's another layer of the dance that, um, and that includes introverts and extroverts and people whose gifts are in the silent realm, like my partner, whose gifts are in the plants and trees and animals. Um, and to lift her up for what she has taught me, but she's, you know, not this kind of exuberant speaker, you know, which is, so it's a risky even to show up to like do these interviews and have people forming these incredible cooperatives that are mixing, you know, queer black folk and white folk in Atlanta. And just if someone reaches out and wants wisdom from my direct experience of wrestling, then, I need to show up and not be small. And then when I'm not being asked to, how to walk across the field looking for every beautiful living sprout so that I'm not... Um, liberation can't happen when I'm oppressing. Like it's like that, that, whole, that whole healing, which I'm not even close, but I'm going to keep wrestling till my last breath. Thanks for listening to part one of Ethan's amazing life journey. The story continues with part two in the next episode. If you'd like to contact Ethan, he can be reached at 207-338-5719. That's 207-338-5719. The Possibility Alliance mailing address is also available in the show notes. Until next time, I'm your host, Tucker Walsh. Have a beautiful day.